You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Back when I was director of the Columbia Art League, my favorite stories were of people who had spent their lives raising families, having a career, taking care of others, and who now, in their later lives, were returning to the thing they had loved in high school, art making. But it isn't only in the world of painting and sculpture that we see this these days. My friend Stacy decided last year that she was going to finally get on the stage and is now a member of the Stable Boys Improv Troupe. My husband started playing guitar again. Other friends have written short stories or books. I started making radio. The fact is that life often gets in the way of art making, and most of us let that happen. But for now at least, that genie seems to be flitting back and forth high above its bottle, and it has no plans on going back into captivity. In this time of enforced isolation, We are making, baking, painting, podcasting, storytelling, stitching, composing, creating, and learning like never before, as the complexities and the time sucks of 21st century life have been forced into abeyance. And whilst we all hope that normal life comes back soon, I hope the arts-making genie is encouraged to stay out of its bottle and will continue to push against our brushes and pens, our guitar strings and knitting needles and sourdough starters, and that we give ourselves the time to continue to play in the sandpit of our choosing. Our first hopping off point on today's tour of the arts in sequestration is the literary enclave of Skylark Bookshop and my compatriot, Alex George. Hello, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? Oh, everything is fine and dandy in the world of isolation. Thank you, because I get to talk to all of my <laughs> arts friends today, so it's all good. So I know we seem to touch on your new book every week, but it's not like they come along, you know, every day, so it, it's worth it. And this week, you got your first delivery of the hardcover version of the book, the first real version. And I want to start our chat today by talking about the artwork on book covers and how Mm. that all works. So what is the process? Well, it varies from publisher to publisher. And this book is published by a different publisher to the people who did my last two. And they sent me a five or six page questionnaire, which asked various questions about Uh, my previous covers and what did I like about them and what didn't I like about them and did I have any particular thoughts or ideas or concepts for the new one all of which I hugely appreciated and it was nice that they (laughs) they bothered to ask Um, and really all I said for this one was just don't put an Eiffel Tower on the cover which was pretty much all I wanted and so of course what they did was to put Eiffel Towers everywhere just to tease me, including they they did a mock-up of the interior pages and actually had a little Eiffel Tower next to every single page number. So they they basically mercilessly <laughs> tormented me with it. But as you know, as you may have seen, there there isn't an Eiffel Tower on the cover. So uh, I'm I'm very happy and, and I'm I'm thrilled with it. It's it's always a slightly nerve-wracking moment when you get the email from your editor and they all it doesn't matter who writes them they all sound the same and it says dear Alex well here it is 
we've been working on this and we're all thrilled. Here's the cover, hope you like it. And then there's a little JPEG at the bottom of the email and you click it. And um, it's a very nerve wracking experience because then this image pops up and there have been moments like with this one when the moment I saw it, I thought, oh, thank heavens, it's wonderful. Uh, that doesn't always happen. There've been times when it's been <laughs> rather less than wonderful. And then you have to write a rather delicately worded email back going, yeah, I'm not sure this is quite what I had in mind. So there, there's, a, there's a back and forth always. And um, although technically authors don't have a right of veto, publishing companies always want to make sure that their authors are happy. And so they do tend to listen uh, when we have particular objections. So what kind of questions do they ask you? Um, well, it is things like sort of, do you think, do you want an outside shot or do you want an inside shot? Is there any particular scene in the book that you think would be representative of the book as a whole? Um, are there any particular colours you like? And I think they also, they ask about old covers and ask what it was in particular that you liked about a particular cover. And I think they sort of try and sort of worm their way into, into the authorial psyche <laughs> and try and work out. They try and guess, you know, because they want to they want to keep authors happy, of course, but obviously their main job is to sell the book and to make an attractive cover that people are going to pick up. Um, and sure, it's not always going to be the case that those two necessarily correspond exactly. And so they, they have a very delicate line to tread between those two possibly com competing uh, things. So my, my, when I think about your book, I think about green, and a staircase. Are you happy with the fact that that's in my head? Um, yes, because I think it's a beautiful color green. And um, and I, I was thrilled that in the end, they didn't go for a more obvious shot uh, or a more obvious idea of an external shot of Paris and something that speaks to the city because and as I, I did say to them you know I mean the title is doing the work for you there because it's called the Paris Hours so you don't really need to have something so obviously Parisian on the cover. I was thrilled though when I saw that it was an interior shot um, because the book feels like a very interior book to me you know you get inside the character's head so that worked for me and a lot of the action takes place inside and, and, and in those kinds of environments so so yeah I was I was thrilled with that. Do you know where the staircase is? I have no idea. <laughs> no I didn't think to ask. Well moving on to the books we're going to talk about this week one of which I'm super excited about and I need to put an order in for it Golden State by Ben Winters. Tell us about that. So Golden State is, I finished about two days ago and Kerry, my business partner at Skylark, read it a while ago and she has been nagging me to read it for a long time and I finally got around to it. And of course, the first thing I said was, why didn't you get me to read this earlier? And then I had to get out of the way before she kicked me. Uh, <laughs> it is so good. It's a, it's a detective story, but it's set in the future and it's set in a place that once was California. It's now called Golden State. And the conceit of the book is that the most important commodity in this society is truth. And there is nothing more important than that. So the very first scene in the book is that the main character in the book is a guy who's, who's called a speculator. And he's basically the truth police. And he has the ability to tell when people are lying. Uh, and so the very first scene in the book, he's having his breakfast in the diner and he hears two sons talking to their mother. And one of them tells the mother a fib and the character then gets put in jail for about nine years for doing it because there is nothing more sacred in this society than truth 
which, you know, in today's times, it seems like a very timely kind of scenario and a, a, an interesting story, because, you know, when you have expressions like alternative facts, you know, everyone seems entitled to their own truths these days. So it was very interesting. But what's great about this book is how cleverly Winters takes this conceit and expands it. And so his imagination is extraordinary. And he's really gone to every kind of logical extreme to sort of make this conceit a reality. And it's just it's just an absolutely mesmerizing book. And, and you fully buy into all of the different things that, that happen. So for example, when people meet each other, instead of saying, hi, how are you? They sort of go, well, two plus two is four. And then the response is, and four times four is 16. It's like people greet each other with facts because these are the most important commodity available. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And in addition to that whole idea, there is also a wonderful story in there. And uh, there's a sort of, um, well, I, won't, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but there's a mystery that needs to be solved as well. Uh, and of course, the thing about the mystery is that you know, there was a crime that was committed and then certain people are lying about the crime. And so what does that mean and what does that look like? It's really, really good. I loved it. Is it is a little George Orwell-esque, a little 1984? Yes, hugely so, because there's a lot of, in order to make sure that everyone is telling the truth, there is vast amounts of surveillance everywhere. And that's one of the things that sort of brings you up short when you read it and you go, well, this all sounds good. I like the idea of everyone telling the truth the whole time. But then you suddenly realise the cost of sort of policing that is is huge. Um, so as with all good fiction, you know, it really makes you think about ideas. And Ben Winters had said that he knew exactly the moment that this idea came to him. And it was the day after President Trump's inauguration. And it specifically was after the incident of the inauguration crowd size debate, right. that that's right. when he thought, yeah, imagine if we could only tell the truth, that it was mm -hmm. totally illegal to not to. But, but also that you can't even, if you could only tell the truth, you can't even hypothesize about something because that's not a truth. And so how this, right now it seems to us that, the, that we miss the truth, we're desperate for the truth, but if you can only have the truth, there are inherent problems in that too. <laughs> oh, absolutely there are. And this is why, so this, this guy, the main character, he, he referred to as Mr. Speculator, because he's one of the few people who has a license to speculate and imagine alternate realities and you know other possible fact scenarios and so yeah that's interesting and also people spend a lot of time sort of past things that they say and so they say, well that wasn't a you know you might call somebody a name and say well that was just an opinion it wasn't you're not you're not actually animals it was a it was a figure of speech and so so people are forever sort of turning themselves into pretzels trying to so no, I didn't mean it like that. So it's 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 very interesting. It's like it's like everything. You know, you you take a, an idea and then take it to the logical extremes, and you find yourself in all sorts of strange, strange territory. It seems like there's not a lot of entertainment in this new world because, you know, plays and films they aren't necessarily truth. And so he, I think he says that this you no know, the the kind of things that you can watch are cobbled together from total surveillance system arguments in yeah. restaurants, surprise proposals, mildly comical misunderstandings, and traffic lights cycling because that's the truth. But plays about suppositions or ideas or potential human emotions, it's not truth. No, it's none of it's true, and so therefore you can't have it. And yeah, it's right. It's basically all there is for entertainment is an enormous YouTube channel. And as you say, you can go through and just and you look in on other people's lives, and there is this very sort of 
slightly creepy voyeuristic sort of element to it all. And in fact, one of the one of the central sort of plot points of the book is when the detective discovers a novel. Gasp. Uh, and so the, there's a wonderful sort of meta quality to the whole thing as well. And so this is just a book full of lies. <laughs> we were going to talk about another book, but I'm not sure that we have time today. If you want to just quickly mention the other one, or we can save it for next week. Yeah, so uh, so this is a book uh, called Wow No Thank You by Samantha Irby. Um, Samantha Irby is an absolutely hysterical writer. She uh, writes the most intimate things uh, in these essays. And uh, we've been selling a lot of her earlier book that was called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. Um, but they are hysterically funny. And she is like honest to the point of you just go, oh, she's surely not going to write a book. Oh, oh, no, no, she is. She really is. And and she just, you know, you're sort of, you're reading it and you're laughing and you're t- curling your toes at the same point. And it's it's a wonderful escape you know, in these difficult times and just, um, you know, reading about someone else's discomfort and misfortunes and just a good laugh is uh, sometimes what we need. And so Samantha Irby's book is exactly that. The New York Times said she might be our great bard of quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, that may well be right. Alex, thank you so much for joining us once again on Speaking of the Arts, and we will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Diana. And from books, we head to the world of fine art for a chat with a woman who dabbles in both books and art, the owner of Yellow Dog Bookshop and the keeper of the Columbia Art League Keys, Kelsey Hammond. Hello, Kelsey. Hello. So I'm curious, where do you find the most solace and nourishment these days, the world of fine art or the world of books? Where do you disappear to and you just need to recharge? Actually, funny to say, um, I actually just picked up Sally Mann's memoir, and I've read it before, but I'm reading it again. It's beautifully written, and it's about her as an artist, and so I'm kind of connecting to both, really. But I mean, do you go and curl up in a corner and read a book, or do you go and and make art when you're just in that space? I mean... I kind of do both. I, I mean, I, I read to fall asleep. So I've been reading at night for sure. And then um, I've been, I have been holding up in my little art studio area and, and trying to get something on paper every day, even if it's just a little doodle or something to scratch around. And, and I went for a drive by myself the other day and took some photos out in the world. And that was sort of magical. <laughs> I tried not to you know talk to anybody while I was doing it. So talk to me about virtual galleries and and what you're doing at the Columbia Art League. You know, we have to sort of, how do we keep the Columbia Art League in the community when the community can't come to where we are, right? So we have been um, looking at a different, some different platforms of how we can have a virtual gallery show that doesn't look too clunky or isn't too strange or, you know, sort of the actual feel of a real gallery space. So we found one that we like and we're going to... Um, we have one show already up on our website right now for the photographer, Dan Farnham, and you can actually click into it and kind of move yourself around in the gallery space, which is kind of cool. So we're going to do that with another, with our group show, the visual mixtape coming up as well. So, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same, obviously, but you'll still get to take a tour of the art as if you were in a gallery rather than just sort of scrolling on a website to see all the artworks, you'll sort of be, be in a physical space in your mind, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, hopefully that will kind of bridge the gap for a little bit here. 
So I had looked at the at the show yesterday online, and you're using yeah. a website called Art Spaces that mm-hmm. that creates this, like you say, it creates this room. It's a it's a room with white walls, and you can look at it from afar, and then you can take a tour of the space, and you basically right. walk around as if you're standing in front of each artwork. But it feels like you're in a three dimensional space. How did you find this website? And are there like you said, you tried various, we looked at various ones. How much is out there right now for this kind of thing? I think I really kind of investigated about three and this one felt the most, um, it wasn't as clunky. Some of them feel a little bit like, you know, like it was kind of rushed and put together kind of quickly, but this one kind of feels a little more like, like you're in an actual space. I think there's a lot of museums and galleries have been kind of looking at this lately, even before this pandemic of trying to encourage people outside of their areas to come into their spaces, whatever that means. And so having viewing galleries or um, doing 3D modeling to have an actual tour of their gallery space, a physical work hung that could then go onto a website so you could view it kind of how our phones do this now, right? Like you can take a 3D picture on your smartphone, which sort of fakes it enough that you can kind of feel like you're moving in space with that photograph, which is kind of weird. But Um, so that's kind of the, I think where some galleries are kind of going in their everyday life. So the technology is definitely catching up to that. Um, I don't know if it's a want, but it's a need at this point. So do you think that you would continue to do this when the real world returns? I think so. I mean, if we can, because I, there's something nice about allowing people to see it who aren't here in the area, you know, so people who've moved away or, you know, maybe your family and friends who can't come and see it. I mean, this might be a great way for artists to reach a larger, you know, community outside of Columbia to show their work. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do, right? The Columbia Art League is here to support artists in whatever space that they're in, in terms of their artistic journeys. We want to make sure that people see their art, buy their art if they love it, you know, that kind of thing but also just have artists get exposure and have people talk about their work and um, give feedback and all of that. So I think that this could be a good way to kind of extend that. You know, we want to encourage people obviously to still see the work in person. I don't think that'll ever go away, but you can't, you just, you can't trade on seeing something in person. There's something magical that happens in that, in that way. So this first show is by the photographer, Dan Farnham. Give us a little overview of it. Dan Farnham um, grew up in Saginaw, Michigan, and he has been photographing youth or the teen, sort of a teenage age group of people for a really long time. He grew up as a skate kid. He used to skateboard and, um, you know, growing up in the 80s 90s there's sort of a latchkey kid mentality where your parents were both working and school ended and then you you know didn't have someone there to pick you up necessarily you walked home or you took the bus or whatever and you kind of had to occupy yourself and so I think that that sort of time in your life is so formative you know you, you meet the friends you probably will know forever your identity is really in question. You're figuring out who you are. You're asking all these large questions of what does family mean? What do I love? What do I want to learn? What do I want to study? What do I do to occupy myself? And so that sort of adolescent space is kind of what Dan is capturing through photographs. So he he walks around in the spaces that he grew up in or the space where he lives now. He lives in Tulsa now. And he just kind of goes to where he knows there are going to be kids hanging out. And he talks to them and takes their photographs and 
what he does is cool because he he puts the teenager in a position of power in that he allows them to put themselves like place themselves so he says can i photograph you and then says how do you want me to take your picture so yeah i mean he gives he gives them power which is something that i feel like a lot of teenagers and young people don't feel like they have I was looking on his website at danfarnham.com and looking at some of the other shows that he has. And so this is really a theme that he returns to time and time again in past bodies of work too. This idea of the cusp between childhood and adulthood yes. and how, yes. how that only comes once in our life. You know, we don't have that same cusp when suddenly we're old. You know, it's a much more right. gradual process, but that process of like one day I'm a child and the next day I'm an adult yes. is much faster. It's a very interesting yeah. point of, of everybody's lives. It is. And I think it's sort of like a, it's a really big, it's like a train wreck. And so I think that his perspective of being able to look back on it now, it's almost like he's sort of, that he can kind of infuse that same feeling of like, oh, to be that young, you know? I mean, it's kind of like at the time, I think we all feel like, so horrified by everything we say and what our parents say and what we do and where we went and this conversation we had and how embarrassing and when you get older you kind of look back and you're like yeah but look at my skin and things were hard but at least I could skate every day or you know like you know the friends like had man we totally got each other and you know sort of endless conversations you had, you know, sitting out under the sky at night kind of thing. So so as a fine art photographer yourself, I'm guessing that you look at a photography exhibit much differently than I do. What do you look for and what speaks to you? What makes a good photography exhibit to you? So, I mean, light is obviously like the biggest thing, how a photographer captures light. So I'm always looking for that quality of light. If I can sort of feel like I'm in there in that space with that person and I can feel how that light, how it would be also on my own body when I'm looking at that kind of photograph. It makes me feel like I'm there with that in that moment. That's kind of my number one. I also look for, if it's color photography, I'm always looking for how is the color playing around this canvas, you know, this thing in front of me. If there's a bright red, where else is that mirrored? Are there complementary colors? I mean, everything I look for in in a photograph is the same kind of stuff I'm looking for, the same visual cues I'm looking for when I'm looking at a painting, but I'm much more aware of the edges, the frame, because the frame of a photograph, you know, when you're a painter, you're making the paint create something. You're taking paint and you're adding to it to make that into a banana or whatever the thing is. When you're a photographer, you are selecting your image in the world and you're subtracting the things that are distracting from that photo from what the point of your message is. So I look a lot at like how people frame things, you know, what did they leave out of the story? Where did they crop the image? Those are all choices that photographers make. And they often give a lot of visual impact to what the photograph itself is trying to convey. So those are kind of my three, my three things, how color is working, the framing and the cropping. And then of course, how light plays out over throughout the photograph. Well, we're out of time for today, but I know you have another big show coming up. So I wonder if you might come back next week on Speaking of the Arts. I would love to. And tell us about the visual mixtape show, which I'm extremely curious about. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. All right. Well, we will see you next week then, Kelsey. Thank you. Bye.
The next stop on our arts tour today is to one of my favourite places in town, Talking Horse Productions, even though the virtual version of the theatre makes me up my game far more than my usual just sitting in a seat with a cocktail. So hello, Talking Horse Artistic Director Adam Bretsky and Mistress of the Stable Boys, Kathleen Johnson. Hi. Kathleen is coming to us today from the closet because it's a great sound. Anybody who records sound over the phone get people to stand in their closet because it it really is a lovely warm sound so thank you Kathleen for getting in the closet yeah it's it's actually kind of nice I feel like I have quite literally shut out the rest of the world I am surrounded by soft fabrics and vibrant colors I might still be here while people are listening to this podcast (laughs) I know where to find you next week (laughs) just don't tell the kids right yeah you're hiding. Okay, so before we get underway with today's improv lesson, Adam, I know you had to announce some big news yesterday about an upcoming show, which I know must have been a heartbreaking decision for you. Do you want to just want to talk about that a little bit first and let people know? Yeah, absolutely. So um, throughout this uh, coronavirus crisis, we had hoped that our big musical production, Fun Home, would be able to be moved later into the year at a time where people were more confident in coming to the theater. But as we've gotten new information and things have changed daily, we've made the tough decision that we we are going to cancel the show this year, which is very unfortunate because the cast and crew had already been working so, so hard on telling the story. And uh, we're all very devastated that we don't get to put on the show this year. However, I do want to leave a glimmer of hope out there that, Because we have not formally announced our 2021 season, we are very committed to putting this production on. And so we're going to move it until the April slot of next year for our 2021 season. And I guess it's too early to tell yet whether the same people will be able to be involved. People don't know their schedules a year out. Right. And we absolutely are inviting as many of the cast as possible to come back. I know, of course... This is a show that has a lot of children in it, and so children tend to have the most things to do. So we absolutely Mm -hmm. understand if, unfortunately, they cannot return to it. But uh, this is a dream cast, and we'd like to keep it as a cohesive unit as much as possible. And that means that the next production of Seminar is also pushed out. Right. We've delayed it to open on July 10th, and we're hoping that that's going to be far enough out uh, that we'll have time to get rehearsals in. And by that point, hopefully everybody will want to come to the theater again. But as of right now, July 10th is when we are slated to reopen for our productions. And I was thinking, you know, of all the arts that are trying to stay active during this time, it seems like theatrical performances are probably the hardest to reproduce and that you have the hardest job as how do you create a virtual stage? Yeah, it's it's something that, quite honestly, we have not figured out yet. We've got lots of ideas. Uh, we've talked about you know, doing stage readings. We've talked about showing monologues and things that people have been able to record. We talked about doing a fighter showcase um, with my experience in stage combat. But unfortunately, with the stay-at-home order, we felt like it would be in defiance of that ruling to gather together to put on something that I think most people would deem as unessential. Um, Hopefully when that stay at home order lifts, we're going to get together and produce some pretty unique opportunities, including improv, as well as maybe some stage combat, maybe some original works. So we'll keep everybody in the loop as things develop, because 
boy, we are itching to get back to the theater and put some work together. I don't think I'm speaking too out of turn here, um, but I can tell you that the stable boys are currently planning, preparing, and uh, will be putting up a Zoom improv show. We've been working on it and prepping for it. So we are nailing down the final details on that. Um, and it will be one that we will suggest donations to go out to Talking Horse to help make sure that we are, you know, sending that money back to keep that theater that we love uh, alive during this time. But we're, you know, at least improv is one of those things, as we've seen on here, that you can it frees you up a little bit more than than some traditional theater and so we're hoping while it might not be as good as the live uh the live in-person thing we can find a way to bring a little laughter into homes so and um you know now that I'm you know this is lesson three of my improv lesson so like you, mm. know, you never know yes <laughs> Well, you know, we've talked a lot about we've talked a lot about kids. And so um, I think what we're going to do today, since we just have a little bit of time, um, we've done listening, we've looked at uh, getting gifts and giving gifts. Uh, and the next kind of step that we talked about kind of moving towards is what do you do once you have those? How do you move the situation forward? And uh, this is really the and part of that yes and of improv. So for today, we're going to do uh, a little game that I love. It's an excellent warm-up for people who are advanced in improv. It's a wonderful game to play with kids. It is an easy one that you can do with anyone who has never had any experience with improv. And it's called I Am a Tree. Okay. I Am a Tree. Perfect. Take it away. You did it just correctly. Diana, you are our first person. So the first person starts by saying, I am a tree. Go, Diana, go. I am a tree. Excellent. The next person would pop in and you get to become anything that would be somewhere where a tree would be. So I'm going to go, I am a squirrel. Ooh, I am an acorn that the squirrel has found. Um, <laughs> Anything at all that could exist in this picture. I am a bird which dropped the nut that the squirrel found. I am the poop that has also dropped by the bird. Uh, I am the child that got pooped on. Excellent. So we're <laughs> going to pause right there. So what you can do, this can go on as long or as short as you want. But the fun thing then is you get to change it and turn it. So now we're going to keep the last thing that was said, a child who was pooped on. And we're going to start a whole new picture beginning with that. So Adam, do you want to restart uh, our new scene with that same character? Sure. So I am the child that got pooped on. I am the mother that had to clean the poop off the child. I am the towel that is wrapped around the child. I am the extra strength uh, antibacterial soap that is inside of the towel. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> Uh, antibacterial soap that is what was it the antibacterial soap that was in the towel yeah in the mm -hmm. towel <laughs> um uh <laughs> i am the private shopper who has had to choose that item off the shelf during this time of sequestration and, and wondered Excellent. why you would need it 
Excellent. I love it. And there we go. We can stop right there. So what's really fun is you can just go creating worlds that exist. You really flesh out the scene when you do something like this. You get to let your mind wander and explore. And then you get to take those and say, what is a whole new thing that I could create from this? Something that you see a lot in both long form and short form are people taking something that was brought up, uh, a game or an element in one scene and calling it back or pushing it forward in another. So I love games that you, that people at all levels of this can use. And I think this is one of them. That is a great game with children too. I can imagine Mm -hmm. that children are just fabulous (laughs) at that. (laughs) Yes. I I wonder how in any story, how how long, how many minutes or seconds it takes to get to poop. Because, you know, (laughs) we all think that's funny. So... Uh, Generally, it's about three. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I can't speak for the ponies, but it is a frequent topic of conversation (laughs) for the stable boys. So... Anything else along those lines to add in? Yes. Yeah, we do. If we have time, we'll show you maybe a quick snippet of a little more advanced game playing on this same idea. So this is called a kind of director's cut or a fast forward, fast back. So Adam and I are just going to start a scene with each other. And maybe Diana, you can give us a prompt for it before we begin. But then you're going to be the director. And so at any point, you can tell us to fast forward a certain amount of time. Maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's two years, maybe it's, you know, seven generations. You get to decide. <laughs> the idea is really seeing, you know, how can we take the story that we've created and and progress it and move it forward while still uh, keeping the heart of what existed. So can you give us a, a, a word, any word um, that we can begin with? Maybe something that you see around you. Painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, are you a... Uh, sir, sir, are you are you the gallery owner here? Uh, yes, yes, this is my gallery. This is my uh, collection of fine arts that I have put together over uh, many generations. Fast forward an hour. And I just cannot get over the use of red in that upper left-hand corner. I find it fascinating. Yes, your eye is drawn to the red. It's the reason that I paid three billion dollars for this painting. Oh my goodness! Uh, uh, now, can we can we move on to the second painting right now? Uh, Are we able? To yes, yes. Thank you now? for listening to me talk about this first painting. Fast forward for to hour. lunchtime. Anyways, mm. that was the details of the second painting over the oh. course of four hours. Yes, I hope you enjoy yes. your your hot dog. No, you know, I was thinking how exquisite of you to have a hot dog vendor right outside of this beautiful, expensive art gallery. The juxtaposition is just indescribable, but but I will describe it for you. Well, as you know, I, I, (laughs) I love the color red, red hot dogs. And of course, the accoutrements of ketchup is the perfect way to go with this wonderful art fast forward to the same time the next day <laughs> anyways that's the third painting to tell you about <laughs> i like to go into detail with my red paintings you know i i normally require at least eight hours of sleep but i i feel so invigorated by your voice i i'm not even <sighs> missing my family or my home yes painting is fascinating you could listen to me talk about it for Yes. <laughs> Fast forward to next Wednesday. Anyways, that's the fourth painting to tell you about <laughs> in my gallery. 
Uh, fast forward to a year from now. And so, well, so I, I think we've made it through your paintings. Is this, is this, did you just finish telling me about the last one? Yes, that was the fifth and final painting that I have in my gallery. Yay! The I would have cut it there. to make it all the way through. <laughs> so that's that game. Well, that probably takes us to being out of time for this week. Thank you once again for a wonderful insight into the world of improv. And, um, and stay safe in that closet, Kathleen. <laughs> I will. One day we'll all be in closets. That's a day to look forward to. Maybe soon. <laughs> I'll see you both next week. Bye. Thanks, Thanks so much. Our next art stop is Ragtag Cinema. So this week, Tom and I made our first foray into the world of Ragtag streaming movies and watched the documentary Slay the Dragon. Highly recommendable, powerful look at the world of American gerrymandering, which I didn't know until I watched the documentary is actually pronounced gerrymandering and not gerrymandering. <laughs> and we also watched The Whistlers, a Romanian crime heist, which will surely intrigue anyone with an interest in linguistics. And Barbie Banks is with us once again to let us know what virtual ragtag happenings are on the cards for this coming week and to talk through with me some of my post-viewing confusion about The Whistlers. <laughs> Hello, Bobby. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I was surprised with a uh, gerrymandering too. I've I was a history major in college, and we always said gerrymandering. So, <laughs> so maybe they're both shocked. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I feel like when you're watching The Whistlers, you should probably read a detailed synopsis of it before you watch it. And I really hate being the person in the room that says, "Who? Who's that guy again? And what country are we supposed to be in right now?" and do you know what's going on? <laughs> but I was that person. And Tom said, I've no idea. And so at the end of the movie, I had to like go online and read a synopsis of it to completely understand who was double crossing who. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you're not the only person that we got that feedback from. <laughs> you know, we're trying to add some excitement to your pandemic world there. So... <laughs> It certainly took my mind off things for a couple of yeah. hours as I, as I tried to work out, you know, what country we were in. But I love I loved the whistling component of it. That was that was really fascinating. So um, read a synopsis first and then it'll all, it'll all make sense. Right, right. At least now at home, you can pause it and do some research as you're watching it. That's true. <laughs> Go and get some more popcorn. Right, exactly. <laughs> so what have we got coming up this week? So this week in virtual in the virtual screening rooms, we're opening Beanpole, which is a film that was at Cannes last year, and it's a um, a film about uh, it's like a post World War II film about these two women and their experiences after the war, and so. It's definitely not an uplifting movie. It's very serious and um, it's not an escape movie. It'll, it takes a lot of feeling to watch it. It's really good. It's an interesting take on post-World War II and um, a different way that women were affected. And the relationship between the two women is just wonderful and a, a deep friendship that, you know, trauma brought them together, but is keeping them as friends. It 
sounds maybe just a little too haunting for me right now that you know yes. maybe I need something that's a bit more <laughs> a bit more yes, uplifting don't blame you for that <laughs> not Even that watching that... the trailer is um it one of the uh reviews was like you have to remind yourself to breathe through it and even watching the trailer is kind of like that where you're just on the edge of your seat about what's happening in their lives and um so it's but it's beautifully shot and it, it great acting in it by the two main women. Um, so, yeah, but it's definitely if you if you're having a rough quarantine day, maybe watch it on a different day. <laughs> so I guess not all the movies that would ordinarily come to Ragtag are available right now. It depends on which production companies are distributing films to uh, cinemas like Ragtag. Is, is that right? I mean, is it a yeah. short, smaller selection that you have to choose from? Correct. Yeah. I mean, if I can be frank, a lot of these films that we're getting right now were likely to, I mean, they're great films, but they were more likely to go directly to video on demand, meaning that they, we, they know they wouldn't have such a huge pull in a movie theater. And so what we're seeing right now are films that we might have not had a chance to see in Colombia, um, but now we're getting that chance with this. So, you know, they're, they're great films. They're just maybe not the ones that we know would bring a large crowd to ragtag. And then the distribution companies, you know, they're giving money to us for showing the films and also to the filmmakers. And so they um, just have a limited number of films that they're also can, can choose from. So it's a weird world out there right now in the film world. So all the movies that would have been coming to us right now in ordinary circumstances, do they just get postponed or are they gone forever? So most of them are getting postponed. There's a new Wes Anderson film that was supposed to come out in June and it got postponed October. Some of them don't have a release date. They're just um, waiting indefinitely for them. We're in kind of this weird time period where usually we know when release dates are months in advance. You know, you can look on IMDb Pro and see what's coming out next year and all those dates have been just wiped. And so it's sort of everything's up in the air. But we do know that um, the Wes Anderson film, that's the one we're probably most excited about, is still coming. And then um, we've been working on a couple titles that are going to come on 35 millimeter that we're kind of waiting to release. But those ones still seem like they'll be coming out in June and July. So it's just like like everybody is doing this weird waiting game to figure out what's going to happen and then there's also the factor of I think as an art house we are more nimble and can quickly switch around movies that we're showing and we have a wider variety that we can pick from because we have more control over our programming but we also have to wait and see what these the large movie theaters are going to be doing and they have less flexibility and they have a lot more debt as corporations and so we're just waiting to see what happens to them there's kind of a divide in our industry that people think if the big movie theaters don't come back, the art houses won't. But I'm having the opposite belief that our nimbleness will put us at top. So, I mean, obviously, not only are films that are already finished being held up by distribution, but all the films that are being made, presumably, are yeah. all on hold. So given how long it takes for a movie to come out be distributed and then go to the awards, I'm guessing that we won't see really any effects at the 2021 Golden Globes and Oscar Awards, but there may be some big differences at the 2022 Awards yeah. because all the films that are supposed to be being made right now that were going to be released next year just won't be there. 
Right. Yeah. And, you know, the Telluride Film Festival that happens in September, that's where a lot of Oscar films are first released. And some of those are, um, even those films are being put on hold because their final production, either, you know, final shoots or final editing is being postponed. And so, and especially with fiction films, they are sometimes reshooting things up until the last minute. I think with documentaries for the True False Film Fest, they're a little bit more flexible. It tends to be one person with the camera <laughs> doing some shooting. And so, um, yeah, I, we were talking the other day about how being a fiction film festival and what that might mean is a little scarier than our documentary one. So, right. I, yeah, I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they when the Spanish flu happened, they still had all the Academy Awards. It was just a little different back then. But the film industry bounce back and I, I hope we can do the same. And for us, I mean, our our greatest asset is our community and we know that they will come see whatever we're programming <laughs> just we to will. get into our space, you know, <laughs> so we appreciate that. So what else do you have? You have two more things that we want to talk about this week. One is a local soap opera. Yeah. So uh, Sasha Goodnow is a local artist and filmmaker, and she has been working on this soap opera for many years. It's called Nettle Point. And when you watch it, you'll be like, oh, I know that person. I know that person. <laughs> they work at Cafe Berlin or they, you know, they're an artist. And so it's made locally with all local people. And we showed it once at Ragtag and had a huge turnout. And so this will be our first venture into showing like a live screening. So before we've done, you pull it up on your TV and you watch it on your own and then we have a discussion this will be we're watching it on twitch and you'll have a discussion afterwards with sasha and how she made that film and we're we are recording it so it can have a replay on tuesday of next week so saturday will be live version and then a replay and it's hilarious it's really funny yeah you're just gonna love it when you get to watch it so it's called a soap opera but it's like a full-length film is it well it's episodes and then she has made commercials for local businesses that play in between the episodes so <laughs> You'll get to see, um, yeah, it's just the mo one of the most creative things I've ever seen. And it's made right here in Columbia, you know. And that starts at uh, seven o'clock with a pre-show at 6.30. What's the what's the time commitment to it? How long is it? It is, I want to say it's two hours long with all the commercials and everything. So there are three episodes and commercials in between and then a quick discussion afterwards with Sasha. Oh, we, I see. We like, we binge watch it. We watch all the episodes yes, at once. exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're all used to that, so. <laughs> and the final thing we have is a reefer mixtape yes tell us what that is so 420 is coming up it is the date that people like to celebrate marijuana and it's slowly becoming legalized so in the 1950s uh, the government made a bunch of propaganda films to encourage people not to participate in smoking marijuana and people are most familiar with reefer madness where it talks about it makes you go crazy and so our wonderful programmer ted has spliced these all together for you to witness this propaganda and laugh at it it's <laughs> it's pretty silly even if you are anti-marijuana now you're it's pretty ridiculous so <laughs> <laughs> but that'll play on 420 and um and then we'll we'll play it twice that day once at 420 4 o'clock 4 p.m and then again later that evening so you can watch it twice on twitch okay well i think that's us out of time for this week barbie thank you so much yes, we will check you. in with you check in with you again next week to see what else is coming up at Rex. yes sounds great <laughs> thanks for having me thanks barbie
And finally this week, we are off for our weekly trip to the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, where this week we're taking a musical tour with its executive director, Trent Rash. Hello, Trent. Hello. Now, after Monica and I dove into the exhausting Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring last week, I have to confess that I was hugely relieved to see George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue on the menu this week. And Monica always likes to poke a little fun at me for my seeming imperviousness to the emotions of music and theatre, mostly because I wasn't a snivelling mess when we went to see Steel Magnolias together. But she was very proud of me this week as I listened to Rhapsody in Blue yesterday and I literally started crying at its beauty. So there, there is hope for me yet. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us all about George Gershwin and Rhapsody in Blue. I picked this as a, a little bit of levity because I know <laughs> Igor Stravinsky is a little intense. So I thought we'd go a little different different direction. And I thought, you know, in light of everything going on in the world, it'd be nice to, to honor an American composer and talk about a little bit of that and how this work is really, truly a, a piece of Americana. So George Gershwin was sort of a child prodigy. He was born to um, Jewish immigrant parents in the New York City area. So he's just a New York City born and bred man. And he took an affinity to the piano pretty early on, and he tried for a long time to find a teacher, and finally he was able to find one that he stuck with for a long time. And after that, his first job, actually he dropped out of school at the age of 15, and he became a song plugger um, on Tin Pan Alley in New York. And so what a song plugger did is that it, I really wish that I could have lived in this time because it was a whole bunch of little rooms about the size of a closet. And there would be a person in there playing a song on the piano and people would walk in and that's how they sold the songs is that they'd be playing and singing them and people would come by and, and, and then decide if they wanted to buy them um, or to put them on the air on the radio. And so he started doing that at the age of 15. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he at the age of 17, he wrote his first piece of music, his first song and sold it for 50 cents and he was on his way. So he, he was a pretty prolific right off the bat. He worked with a number of different lyricists early on because he wrote a lot of, of popular music at the time. Um, and finally, he settled on his longest relationship with his older brother, Ira Gershwin. And they wrote all the tunes that we remember. You can't take that away from me. I got rhythm. Um, the Man I Love, all those ones that we know from, from those uh, musicals that they wrote, those early musicals. But he was sought after in 1923 by a band leader called Paul Whiteman, who had one of the most popular big bands of the 1920s and 30s. And in 1923, he came to George and said, you know what? I just did this concert where I tried to do an infusion of jazz and classical music, and I'd like to do that again. And George was like, I don't know. The, the, the trick was, Paul's like, this concert's actually in five weeks. So... George is like, that's that's way too short. I can't get that done in that amount of time. But what happened was um, there's, a, there's a really funny story that George and Ira were having breakfast together and Ira was reading the New York Tribune and it was an article called What is American Music? And in the final paragraph, it said, George Gershwin is at work on a jazz concerto. So it seemed like Paul had made the decision for him. <laughs> and so he had... So after, after that point, he got on the phone with Paul and got to work and, and actually got the work done. And it, it's really crazy because he got the piece done in about four weeks. And then the orchestrator had eight days to orchestrate the work because Rhapsody in Blue was originally written because, of course, George Gershwin being a pianist, all of his, his songs were mainly piano. He originally wrote it for two pianos. 
but it was orchestrated actually for Paul Whiteman's big band. So the very first performance was a pianist who was George Gershwin and the big band. And since then, it has had two different other arrangements, one for the theater, for a pit orchestra, and then one that we kind of know that it's been used from then on in 1942 for a classical symphony. And that's the one that we see used a lot in today's age. But the piece did debut on time, as it was supposed to in February of, of 1924, and George Gershwin was the pianist, fittingly. And it's kind of interesting because he actually hadn't written out the piano part. So the orchestrator had orchestrated all of the, <laughs> the parts for all the other instruments, and it just said there'd be a blank page that would say piano solo here. And people would know that they would just start again when they got a little head nod from George Gershwin. And so it said that George actually used a lot of improv in the performance, and then after it is when he wrote down the piano. Part. So we don't know what the original piano part sounded like if there was one at all until after that original performance, which is kind of neat. But after that initial performance, there was a lot of mixed reviews about the piece. A lot of people you know, appreciated the American sound because jazz is sort of known as America's gift to the world. But a lot of people thought it was a little conjointed and just a lot of melodies put together with no real hoity-toity sonata form that people want to see in that classical fusion. I wanted to point out that the recording that we have is conducted by Leonard Bernstein, and he actually wrote about the piece as well. And he said the following thing in the Atlantic Monthly. The Rhapsody is not a composition at all. It's a string of separate paragraphs stuck together. The themes are terrific, inspired, God-given. I don't think there has been such an inspired melodist on this earth since Tchaikovsky. But if you want to speak of a composer, that's another matter. The Rhapsody in Blue is not a real composition in the sense that whatever happens in it must seem inevitable. You can cut parts of it without affecting the whole. You can remove any of these stuck-together sections, and the piece still goes on as bravely as before. It can be a five-minute piece or a 12-minute piece. And in fact, all these things are being done to it every day, and it's still the Rhapsody in Blue. That's actually a pretty generous review because some other people were much more intense about their res their responses. I think it was called trite, feeble, and conventional, sentimental and vapid. <laughs> yes, that was a particular reviewer who had actually reviewed another work of Gershwin's like a few weeks before and also was just as... Um, not as, as undiplomatic, I guess, <laughs> in, a, in the best way to put it. He said, weep over the lifelessness of the melody and harmony. Mm -hmm. So derivative, so stale, so inexpressive. And yet, you know, 100 years later, it makes me cry. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think it, it does is that it really brings some visceral images because what he's what he's done i think so brilliantly is he's combining together america with europe because those are his, his two big you know his parents are from you know europe he was born in america but you know only first generation and i think he was really trying to fuse these elements of the classical western music with this new wave of music that's taking place in america and a lot of people do i think get sentimental and emotional about that here we are trying to show that these two forms of music can work together it's kind of interesting because there was a little bit of play when they were rehearsing this piece it's said that that very famous clarinet glissando at the beginning which i think we'll hear when we listen it was actually said that that wasn't written in but the clarinet decided during one rehearsal he they did it as a joke and of course gershon was there because he was playing the piano part and it was Ross Gorman, who was the clarinetist, who was Paul Whiteman's band. And Gershwin, he kind of chuckled it off. And Gershwin said, no, keep that. 
and, and make it as much of a whale as possible. So, you know, that really was actually a brainchild of the player netists and not of Gershwin's just trying to have a little fun. So I think there was a little bit of that play that, you know, came out as they were working on this piece. Well, let's listen to a little bit from the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. So before we close, Trent, I know you have a couple of events coming up uh, with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra this weekend. You have the first Mosey Mixer uh, Friday night, Friday evening. Tell us quickly about that. Yeah. Tonight, we do have an event at 5.30 called our Mosey Mixer. And me and my director of development, Monica Palmer, we're going to be giving some insight on what music does to our brains. We're going to chat about some of the secret lies of composers. We're going to have some interactive fun, and we're going to leave our audience with some suggestions on pieces to listen to to help alter our mood during this time. And we also have the next day on Saturday, April the 18th, Maestro Kirk will have a coffee with a conductor at 10 a.m. So you can bring your own coffee to that event, and he's going to just talk about his experiences as a conductor and 
some fond memories he has of pieces that he has conducted. Both of these events can be found on Facebook and registration is required. And we do have a donation field if you feel so inclined to give a donation. Perfect. Yes, I I bought my ticket for the Mosey Mixer. I'm trying to think of a custom cocktail to make so I can pass that recipe on to everyone. <laughs> Trent Rush, thank you so much. We'll be back next week with Monica to talk about another piece of music and uh, some more insights into music from the past. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for staying at home and listening to this week's show. And thank you to everyone who is out there keeping us safe. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we are able to congregate again. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.